One of the questions that was asked in the wake of December's mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School was, has our country finally suffered enough gun violence to create the political will to tighten our country's gun regulations? For me, enough was not the tragedy in Newtown. Enough was 13 years earlier, the Columbine High School shooting, which resulted in the deaths of 12 students and one teacher before the shooters committed suicide. I was a junior in college at the time. For others of you, perhaps enough was April 16, 2007, when 32 people were killed at Virginia Tech. Or in 1991, when 23 people were killed by a gunman in Luby's cafeteria in Kylene, Texas. Or 1984, when 21 people were shot and killed at a McDonald's in California. Or 1966, when 14 people were shot at the University of Texas at Austin. Or perhaps enough for you was when a loved one was killed or injured by gun violence. A significant number of famous U.S. citizens have, often, have also been killed from gun violence. President Abraham Lincoln, President James Garfield, President John F. Kennedy, Senator Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Harvey Milk, John Lennon, musician Marvin Gaye, Ennis Cosby, the son of comedian Bill Cosby, James Jordan, father of Michael Jordan, Yatunda Price, the sister of Venus and Serena Williams. That short list is far from ex exhaustive and does not begin to mention the much longer list of those who survived gun violence or committed suicide using a gun, which has a much, much higher, astonishingly higher rate of lethality than people that attempt suicide by other methods. These names and events are only a small reminder that as we consider where to go in the wake of the Newtown tragedy, we need to be aware of how many lives have been lost or irrevocably changed by gun violence in the past with far too little change in gun regulations. Our nation's history of gun violence is one major reason that I'm not sure it can ever be, quote, too soon to call for more responsible gun regulations in the wake of gun violence, as you often hear. It's just it's too soon to talk about that. After so much relentless carnage, year after year, calling for more responsible gun regulations can never come soon enough. And despite our nation's blood-stained history of gun violence, our collective resistance to gun regulation has remained relatively intractable. But there are exceptions. Two months and one day after MLK's assassination, and only one single day after the assassination of RFK, the U.S. Congress passed the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Street Act of 1968, the first federal gun control law in 30 years at that time. With the assassination of RFK, the political will to enact uh, gun control shifted literally overnight. And legislation was passed. That did not happen with Newtown. This historical precedent is one of the, of, in 1968 is one of the many reasons that convinced me that the longer we wait the, in the wake of gun violence to attempt to pass regulation, the lower the likelihood of passage. Inaction favors the status quo. One of the reasons that I scheduled both this second sermon about reducing gun violence and a sermon conversation afterwards 
um, to hear back from you, is that we find ourselves now almost three months after Newtown, and another 2,517 people and counting have died of gun violence in this country just since December. And far too little has changed about the causes contributing to this high death rate. It's aberrant when you look at other countries that are our peers. I drafted the statement that you see um, in the insert your order of worship. I invite you not to read that now. Um, you can read it later. But I drafted that in conversation with Stephen Jill Shatkin as well as others. Um, Stephen Jill are two among quite a few of the UCF members and friends who have been attending rallies and working to encourage legislation in recent weeks and months to take steps to reduce future gun violence. And I'll admit that I'm curious if we can come to any sort of consensus, even within this congregation, much less the U.S. Congress, about how to reduce the causes of gun violence. If we were to come to consensus around any such statement in whatever form, uh, which ultimately would have to happen at our annual meeting in June, so today is just a forum to continue the conversation and to solicit comments, then such a statement would allow us to speak about not only what individuals and members and committees think about gun violence here at UCF, but what we as a congregation, where we want to stand. One of the frustrations that Jill and Steve and others have experienced is you go to gun rallies and you see banners from the UU Legislative Ministry of Maryland, the UU Congregation at Cedar Lane and various, but you don't see a banner from the UU Congregation of Frederick, and that's because we rightly, I think, and it's a good idea, have a policy that we have to come to consensus as a congregation around things before we can say what we do or don't um, stand for. And in good UU fashion of respecting the importance of each individual's conscience, our policy regarding any such statements allows that any dissenting members can permanently attach objections to any such statement. So even if there's a large consensus, even one individual can attach a dissenting statement, just like the Supreme Court. Regardless of the the conversation's outcome this afternoon, and if, if you have time, I invite you to stay afterward, that as soon as the service ends, go grab a cup of coffee, use the bathroom, whatever you need to do, and you're invited to come back in here in the sanctuary, and we'll end the conversation by 1.15, so we're not going to trap you forever. If you can only stay for part of it, that's fine, but I invite you to be part of this important conversation, because I think it's important for us to do the hard work of creating safe spaces in which we can have honest conversations about what we really think and feel about hard issues. And on this issue in particular, a vital starting point is increasing awareness about the ways that gun violence has touched our individual lives or the lives of our close family and friends so that we can better understand the perspective that each of us is coming from. So for those who are comfortable sharing part of their story, I will be inviting us to begin our conversation this afternoon not by going immediately to a debate about the Second Amendment or legislative policies, but by listening to one another's stories. By no means, however, do I think that hearing one another's stories ensures that, oh, well, then we'll definitely come to a consensus around um, what it means to talk about responsible common sense um, responses to preventing gun violence. There seems to be a very large difficulty coming to whatever we mean by common sense regarding guns in this country. Uh, for example, the famous or maybe infamous alternative to increased gun reg regulation is that you hear people saying, well, we should just have more guns more concealed weapons, arming teachers with guns, especially, you know, no, essentially no limits on private gun ownership. 
Some of you may have seen the news on Friday that South Dakota became the first state to enact a law explicitly authorizing school employees to carry guns on the job under a measure signed Friday by their governor. And while I do think that there's some truth in the old saying that a tough-on-crime conservative is often a liberal who has been mugged, I also believe that at our best, we choose to act and structure our society not out of fear and anxiety, but out of compassion, out of generosity, and out of hope. Along these lines, there was a fascinating article in yesterday's New York Times about the growing number of people who freely admit that they only have guns because they know that their neighbors do. You'll see things like, I'd love to see all the guns destroyed, but I'm not giving up mine first. So although any attempt to prevent gun violence must take into consideration that there are already an estimated 300 million guns in private hands in this country, 300 million, we should also keep in mind that the percentage of U.S. homes with a gun has seen a four-decade decline. The rate has fallen from an average of 50% of homes having a gun in the 1970s to only 35% of households in this country have, a gun, have guns in the 2000s. As conservative commentator David Frum has said, the gun industry's business model is the same as talk radios, sell more and more to fewer and fewer customers. So yes, there is a significant vocal minority of gun owners whose perspective and rights must be taken into account. And there are legitimate reasons for and paths to maintaining responsible gun ownership now and in the future for hunters and others. However, I'm unconvinced by those individuals and groups who see uh, the large number of guns already out there, 300 million guns, and say that, well, we might as well just do nothing. Despite there being 300 million guns out there, the shockingly high rates of gun violence tell me that we have to start somewhere. Change has to be made towards saner, more responsible gun regulation, even if the journey will be a long one. At the same time, it's important to name that a call for simple, sane, gun, sensible gun regulations is not an extreme position. I'll give you an example of an extreme position in a second. But calling for gun regulations is at minimum a moderate compromise position. To give some context for those who feel like the gun regulations currently being considered in legislatures across our country are extreme, consider that some activists for the prevention of gun violence would like to see complete domestic disarmament. That is, the banning of the sale of all guns to private parties coupled with the buyback of those on the streets. We buy back those 300 million guns. Collectors can keep their guns if they'd like, as long as they remove the firing pin and fill the barrel with cement. Gun sports can be allowed in closed shooting ranges, and hunters, if they pass background checks, can be allowed to have long guns with no scopes, because scopes aren't sporting. There are nations, Great Britain, New Zealand, Norway, a few others, where most guns have been removed from private hands, and often even from the police. There are concerns also about the increased militarization of our police, but that's probably best uh, left as a subject for another sermon. As one columnist wrote about this comparison, having few guns does mean, when you look at these countries, that fewer people get shot. 
In 2008 to 2009, there were a total of 39 fatal injuries in crimes involving firearms in both England and Wales. Over a two-year period, 39 um, fatal injuries. Uh, That area is about one-sixth the size, or that population is about one-sixth the size of America's. During that same time period in in America, there were 12,000 gun-related homicides. If you did the math extrapolating from Great Britain to the size of the U.S., there should have been 234 homicides, not 12,000. That's the difference that our current gun policies make. One primary impediment many people would cite to even taking baby steps in the direction of domestic disarmament is the Second Amendment. I spent a fair amount of time in my sermon this past December giving evidence for both why myself and many legal scholars who know far more about the Constitution than I do think think that in 2008 the Supreme Court got it wrong in the case of District of Columbia versus Heller, which ruled for the first time, so in 2008 it was ruled for the first time in all of U.S. history that the Second Amendment to the United States protects an individual's right to possess a firearm for self-defense. Prior to that, previous cases, at least at the Supreme Court, had leaned toward the militia theory of the Second Amendment, which emphasizes that any interpretation of the Second Amendment gun rights are highly contingent upon a well-regulated militia. In this line of thinking, if you want to exercise your Second Amendment rights, you're free to do so. Sign up for the National Guard which is arguably the contemporary equivalent of our founders' well-regulated militia. It's also important to point out that this landmark 2008 shift in the legal landscape in District of Columbia versus Heller was a 5-4 split decision in which the justices were divided along ideological lines. William Brennan, a former Supreme Court justice, used to ask all his new law clerks, what's the most important rule in constitutional law? What is the mo- no pressure there, right? You're a new law clerk for the Supreme Court justice asking you, what is the most important rule in constitutional law? He'd watch them fumble a bit for a few answers, and then he would hold up one hand with five fingers outstretched. Five, he would say. Five is the most important rule in constitutional law because you need five votes to make a majority on a nine-member Supreme Court. In other words, replacing only one conservative justice could make a very different interpretation of the Second Amendment, the law of the land. Um, I don't want to get into now about these debates around originalism and all of that. I did some of that, and we can talk about that later if you'd like to. But beyond the Second Amendment, my larger concern with moving toward anything like domestic disarmament would be the difficulty of avoiding what some people call the law of unintended consequences. For example, stricter gun laws, even with careful planning and intentional implementation, could easily contribute to higher rates of mass incarceration through stricter sentences for gun-related crimes. And a black market similar to the legislative tragedy that was prohibition or that is the drug war. With that major um, caveat in mind of wanting to avoid higher rates of mass incarceration or avoiding any sort of um, black market like prohibition or the drug war, where should we go from here? For those of you who can stay for some of the hour, uh, some or all of the hour-long um, congregational conversation that will begin at 12.15 today in the sanctuary, I look forward to hearing from you about what you think our potential next steps should be, what resonated with you in the sermon, what didn't, as well as what I may have gotten wrong or overlooked. 
But for now, I will move toward a conclusion by listing the following five potential steps of where we could go from here in working to prevent future gun violence. First, I'm using the phrase preventing gun violence intentionally, and I would encourage you to do the same if you're sympathetic to this um, position. Setting political correctness aside, sometimes terminology does matter. And strategically calling for legislation to prevent gun violence is much more persuasive to a much larger swath of people than the phrase, we need more gun control. We don't like control in America, so it's, it's effective to use the phrase prevent gun violence. Much more sympathetic. Second, instead of starting with the debate of the Second Amendment, so you find you disagree with people about where to go, instead of starting with the Second Amendment, start with sharing your personal experience. Start with sharing your story about people and your close friends and family who have been affected by gun violence, if that is the case for you, so that you help create a sense in which, a compelling reason why we need change. Third, I encourage you to visit the Prevent Gun Violence page on the website of the Unitarian Universalist Legislative Ministry of Maryland, especially if you live in Maryland, uh, to learn more about pending legislation in this state, to discern whether you feel led to contact your um, representatives and to see if there's other ways you might feel led to get involved. Fourth, consider the following plan of action for preventing gun violence, which was developed by a public health expert. After extensive study, this expert concluded about 10 years before Sandy Hook that the crucial first step is to create an agency that has the power, a federal agency that has the power to regulate firearms as a consumer product, just like the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. We basically need what Ralph Nader did for cars. We need that done for guns. Uh, we need a federal agency, which just like what requires cars to have seatbelts, collapsible steering columns, shatterproof windshields. Any, such a firearms agency could require that firearms be childproof, that pistols have magazine safeties, that serial numbers be tamper-resistant. It's crucial that this federal agency have the power to respond quickly to changes in technology and the marketplace. Any such regulatory agency should actively promote new technology that will make our society safer. For example, smart or personalized guns. We have smartphones now. We can have smart guns. We have the technology that can make them so they can only be fired by authorized users. You may have seen the new James Bond movie playing with this idea. Uh, that can help prevent unintentional injuries of children and adolescents and limit the criminal use of stolen guns. Advances uh, in technology of less lethal firearms should also be much more strongly considered. Electric stun phasers, um, tranquilizer guns, beanbag guns could mean that police, civilians, and even criminal shootings would be less likely to result in death or serious injury. You may have seen um, some of the articles about officers, even if they hit criminals, bullets can go through the person that was shot, hit, um, hit a wall, and then the ricochet injures civilians. This often happens in gun-related um, when, when police get involved with the best intentions and the best training. Uh, any such federal agency should ensure the creation of a national firearm injury surveillance system that each year would investigate in depth a large sampling of shootings. We just don't have the data we need in a lot of cases, and we should make that data available to researchers and provide funding for research. 
To reduce criminal gun use, there should be licensing of gun owners and registration of handguns. A one-gun-per-month law created at the national level would reduce gun running. To eliminate the secondary sales loopholes, all gun transfers should be required to go through licensed dealers with attendant background checks on purchases. You know, basically what we have now is what we think the Wild West was like and related to guns. But if you actually look at the history of the Wild West, the, those towns like Tombstone had incredibly strict gun control laws. When you came into town, if they didn't know you, you had to check your gun with the sheriff. I mean, so I think we have some, we have some misperceptions about our own history as a nation. Licensed dealers should face greater scrutiny from government regulators. The fifth and final point I offer for your consideration is the possibility of requiring gun liability insurance, which the more I read about, including recent articles in The Economist, The New York Times, Slate, NPR, Forbes, people are talking about this idea. It's, it's more legitimately possible. Now, passing it's a different model matter, but it's more uh, legitimately possible than I thought when I first heard about it which does not mean, again, that passing it would be easy. But that may mean the level of resistance to it may be the in indicative of the level of effectiveness it might have. Consider that the real problem with gun ownership is that guns involve what are called externalities. That's economists speak for the fact that your gun may be used differently than how you intend. It may be used to hurt others. When Nancy Lanza purchased her Bushmaster AR-15, she probably weighed the benefits of owning the gun, the joy of ownership, with the price, about $800. In doing a cost-benefit analysis, she decided it was worth the price of $800. But it's unlikely that she considered the loss, pain, and grief that might follow if it were used by her son to kill 26 innocents. When people fail to consider the broader social costs of their choices, like buying a gun, they're more likely to make these decisions, and society suffers. There's been far too much suffering from gun violence in our nation. We can and must do better. We must do better for ourselves. We must do better for our children.